Well, this clock says 7.29, so it's like an airplane leaving early or something. It doesn't seem right. for the magic hour, let me just say, or magic minute, I should say. Um, <clears throat> now, what if the clock stopped? That would be bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, tomorrow morning's schedule is uh, we will have an early morning sitting, and then the first sitting after breakfast will be somewhat later, so you have time to clean your rooms. Um, and I think that's uh, 9.15, actually. Uh, and then at around 9.40, we're going to begin this process of closing the course, which will involve uh, discussion groups and uh, times when we're all together, you know, discussing um, these themes of caregiving and balance and so on. So uh, that'll happen here in the hall from about 9.40 until we close. Okay. Oh. <laughs> um, I want to start tonight actually by talking a little bit about generosity because these practices of compassion and loving kindness are considered <clears throat> practices of generosity. And like any act of generosity, we know when it's a freely given gift or when <clears throat> we're offering something based on a whole bunch of other considerations, expectation, needing to be thanked. Um, and I'll talk more about this a little bit later, but the part of generosity that I was thinking about uh, in terms certainly of caregiving, which is a process of generosity, has to do with certainly a, a belief in Buddhist teaching that the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance that if within we feel just depleted, overcome, exhausted, there isn't a lot of energy for giving. And we see that in the material kind of generosity as well. <clears throat> we often talk about um, <clears throat> going to countries like Burma, for example, to practice different countries where the ethic of giving is very strong. So for example, in Burma on your birthday, you don't expect to get gifts, you expect to give gifts. That's how you celebrate. Um, and also where meditation is held in such enormously high regard, you know, so if you go to a, a retreat center in a country like Burma, you don't pay anything. And all the food is offered so people come, you know, in celebration of a birthday or to commemorate someone who's died or, you know, some family event. They'll come and they'll feed all the meditators. And it'll be really extraordinary because, of course, it's a very, very poor country. 
but people will offer just the best of what they can and and they come when they can and, and watch you eat and, and there's such joy that they're experiencing and expressing and then you know to go through that for months and months and be the recipient of so much generosity and then to come back here and to encounter some people at any rate who'd have an immense amount more materially or objectively but did not have that inner feeling that they could spare anything you know that they even had enough and so there wasn't that same kind of relinquishing and offering and spirit of generosity so that feeling of not having enough is is an important thing to look at you know that sense of deficiency a lack of of resource within and certainly you know the material is just symbolic of that kind of experience in you might call it generosity of the spirit you know i've given loving kindness instruction a gazillion times and very often as we get to that place we talked about this afternoon of offering loving kindness to a benefactor afterwards someone will come up to me and say well you know i chose the dalai lama as my benefactor and I was offering him all of this loving kindness. And then I had the thought, wait a minute, what does he need me for? <laughs> you know, he's the Dalai Lama. And I find that quite interesting in two ways. One is, how do we know? You know, for all we know, somebody like him is completely nourished every moment of the day by people's prayers and well-wishing and loving kindness and so on. And also, what an interesting point of view that I have nothing to give. What I have to contribute is so meager. It's so meaningless. It's so unimportant. So that, that's that same sense uh, within, which keeps us from being able to extend, being able to share in a free, free kind of way with that freedom of heart, that generosity of the heart. And I saw another example of that. Uh, it, it goes back to something Susan made reference to last night when she talked about the near enemy of compassion. If compassion is the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to seeing pain or suffering, the far enemy, be, far enemy being cruelty, the near enemy being this state um, sometimes it's translated as pity, sometimes it's translated as sorrow or grief, and it doesn't mean the Western psychological sense of grief. It means being overcome by the pain that we see. It means being exhausted, depleted, not having that, that sense within that we can give, we can even be present in the, in the face of that suffering. Uh, once many years ago, uh, Joseph and I went to what was then the Soviet Union to teach. Uh, it was actually illegal to teach meditation. So we went as part of a tour group and we just kind of go away in the afternoons <laughs> and not tour around. And uh, we would go to different people's living rooms with a translator and, and we would teach. And, I was speaking a lot about compassion and 
I kept getting like this really funny feeling in the room. So finally, I sat down with the translator and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? <laughs> and they described in these very florid terms, they said, you know, I talk about being like broken and <laughs> nearly destroyed by the suffering that you see. And he said, it's like someone has taken a giant stake and driven it through your heart. And I thought, well, no wonder there's a really funny feeling in the room. <laughs> you know, but we can get quite confused because it's hard. It's not that easy to be present with suffering and not to fall into that state. Someone, uh, a Buddhist scholar, suggested um, the word despair to me. Um, rather than sorrow or grief, which can be confusing for us because of the ways we tend to use the words, or being just shattered. And it is so obvious to us just from life, you know, when we're shattered, we don't have it to give. Or another uh, time I went to Walter Reed Army Hospital um, to lead a program for the nurses. It was National or International Nurses Week in a a student of mine is a nurse there. And so she um, got me invited to do this program and also to have a tour of one of the wards before uh, I began teaching. And so, you know, naturally, of course, it was extremely intense, very painful, very difficult to witness between the, you know, the people there in the hospital or their families, it was very, very hard. And then, you know, so she came with me on the tour. And then at the end, she said to me, you know, the nurses who can stay here, and of course that means who can continue to give, she said the nurses who can stay here are not the ones who get lost in sorrow. She said the nurses who can stay here are the ones who can connect to the resiliency of the human spirit. And I thought, there it is again, you know, the same kind of, of message. So what allows us to have a greater sense of resiliency? One thing is a kind of balance. You know, without some measure of balance, we will fall very readily into a state of being overwhelmed. It doesn't take much, actually, to, you know, to feel shattered or overcome in some way. And balance includes some balance between loving kindness for ourselves and loving kindness for others. It's not real, it's not realistic that we can completely overlook ourselves and continue to have that sort of resourcefulness, that sense of inner abundance um, to be able to give. And here I want to uh, switch for just a moment and talk about uh, from within the Buddhist tradition, one might think of an action that we do, an action that we take as having different aspects to it. And the first aspect is the motivation. It's the intention behind the action that we take. And this is considered very important 
both to be in touch with, to understand, and to transform when we need to. Because the, the motivation behind the action, um, unlike a Western understanding, which might be more like, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, the intention or motivation in uh, an Eastern understanding is considered very, very important because that's where the energy of the action resides. So, for example, if I were uh, to reach my hand out and offer someone the vase of flowers sitting in front of me, all anybody sees is my hand moving down and picking up an object and moving it forward. But what is in my heart that is sparking that action to begin with? Now, maybe I'm offering you the vase of flowers because I like you. And I think, I want you to have this, this really lovely thing. Or maybe I see you have a bigger vase of flowers. And I think, well, hey, you know, maybe I'll give you this, and then you'll feel obligated to give me that. <laughs> or maybe I just gave a whole big talk on generosity in front of a room full of people, and I want everyone to think of me as a very generous person. Or maybe I don't like you, and I think, eh, maybe you're allergic, you know, and I just like hand you the vase of flowers or the smile, you know, and like my hand is doing, my arm is doing the same thing in each activity, but they're coming, it could be coming from a very, very different place. And so that's considered the, the distinguishing mark of an action is the intention or the motivation. So are we offering something out of a sense of martyrdom? We don't deserve to have anything. Therefore, we're just giving it away. Is it uh, really a kind of loving kindness or compassion? Only we know. It's not revealed in my hand. It's not actually revealed in the activity. So part of our mindfulness practice is to really try to pay attention to be aware of where we're coming from, because it matters. It's actually an important aspect of what we do. And it's also said, interestingly enough, it's both said in traditional teachings and reinforced in modern research, that if we do practice like loving kindness meditation, uh, you could say the part of the psyche that is transformed or transfigured is our motivation. It's our field of intention. So if, for example, we have tended to act out of a place of fear, and we do a practice like loving-kindness meditation, we will find that we tend to act from a place of connection, a sense of connection, that there's actually like a transfiguring of our field of motivation. We're coming from a different place in what we do or what we say as we do that practice. And that's one reason why often uh, something like loving-kindness meditation uh, has an effect that is not studied. It's not self-conscious. It's not self-righteous. You know, it's not that you're in a situation and you think, oh, you know, I really wish I could be nasty, but, you know, Everybody knows I went to that retreat, and you know I better force myself to act like I'm 
filled with kindness, you know, I just have to pretend. It's not like that. Because, you know, the way we've seen the world or, or that whole field of motivation starts shifting. So that there's, there's almost a kind of naturalness to it, um, rather than being something so forced and, and determined and effortful. I think often of the Dalai Lama as a model for this, in that, you know, I've seen him through many years with a lot of different kinds of people, and I just haven't seen him seem to have a reaction like, oh, this person's not important enough, or they're so boring, you know, but I am the Dalai Lama, so, you know, I better act like I care, you know. It doesn't seem to be like that, so that, so much so that one of my friends said when he won, um, when he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, my friend said, giving the Dalai Lama a Peace Prize is like giving Mother Nature an art award, you know? <laughs> but it doesn't just happen. I mean, he's the one who practices three or four hours every day, <clears throat> you know? Uh, it's not haphazard, it doesn't just arrive. But the transformation is very genuine. You know, we are coming from a very different place. So that's that whole arena of intention or motivation. It's also um, considered to be a, an aspect of action that we take, um, that we learn certain skills, that we can sense the skillfulness or unskillfulness of an action. We have mindfulness in this sense in a much broader context so that we might try to really pay attention to where we are. You know, if out of a, a genuinely kind and caring motive, I want to offer you this vase of flowers, maybe I stop and think, well, you know, there's only one vase. <laughs> there are a lot of people in this room. Might I do this privately? Might I, you know, say this when I do it? What, what would seem to be the most skillful means of doing this? And here too, I remember um, not too long ago seeing the Dalai Lama uh, in Seattle, I think it was, um, and he gave a talk which I found extremely amusing because <clears throat> he was saying things like, perhaps it's not so skillful to say it's warm in the room because maybe not everyone is feeling warm. Maybe it's more skillful to say, I'm feeling warm. And I was so amused because I thought, wow, he sounds like every communications coach from California I've ever heard, you know, <laughs> use I language. <laughs> like, I thought, who's he been talking to? He's probably a communications coach from California. Um, but isn't it true, you know, if somebody just sort of says something that is like, this is the absolute truth. This is the way things are. It just seems to take up all the space in the room and you know what if you go to the movies with a friend and they walk out and say that was the best movie ever made you know how emboldened do you feel to say I don't think so <laughs> I thought it was horrible you know so we learn certain skills of communication of action of sensitivity um, and this is also an arena which is always moving, it's always changing, because we can learn as we develop more mindfulness. 
And it's in this context that we also place this sense of balance of loving kindness for ourselves and loving kindness for others. We understand that uh, if we forget about ourselves altogether, our motive is going to very likely not be a pure state of compassion because we're not going to have it in us to be able to give in that way. <clears throat> and the level of skill with which we act is, is also going to suffer an effect. So we need to bring in that kind of balance. And, you know, there's no formula. It would be easier if it were a formula. But it's an awareness that needs to happen. You know, as many of you know, I was involved um, with many friends uh, in a program through the Garrison Institute working with first domestic violence shelter workers and then uh, directors and supervisors um, on issues of vicarious trauma. And we used yoga and meditation uh, as the primary means that um, we were introducing to see if it would be helpful for people who, you know, clearly have a very hard job and are dealing with a tremendous betrayal and, uh, you know, witnessing tremendous betrayal and um, suffering and uh, are, as many of you, I'm sure, like I really consider the unsung heroes of this society. I used to look at those people and think, wow, if they stopped doing their jobs, it's like I bet the whole society would crumble. You know, but there's so little appreciation and so little award and reward. And, you know, it's very difficult. And yet they had a tremendous spirit. You know, if anything, it was because of the sensitivity um, and love that they brought to bear that uh, it began to be just way too much for many of them, you know, and, and it, was, it was really very difficult. So we had this program, and, and it was very interesting because uh, one of the things they determined in uh, under, you know, somewhere partway through the program was that they wanted to establish what they called a culture of wellness at their shelters. They wanted to change the environment altogether, and that included things like, for each of them, actually taking a lunch break, which, you know, they were contractually allowed, but didn't seem to ever do. And one woman came back, she was very funny, uh, to tell the story. She said, you know, she uh, determined to take a lunch break, and so she locked the door of her office but that didn't work uh, because people would like peer through the keyhole <laughs> to see if, she, if there was life in there <laughs> and they could bother her. So she'd like lock the door to her office and turn out the light and she would just practice and that way she got some space. You know, and, and people were uh, contributing more and more suggestions as to what that might look like. Um, and I think it was a really essential contribution to that understanding of balance, that our generosity needs to be coming from a certain place, and it needs to be as skillful as possible, 
And that's going to take a lot of insight and a lot of really careful consideration. And perhaps the, the greatest thing we would say is the greatest thing that will help in the creation of balance is wisdom. It's insight. And bringing that to bear on the social structures that we are engaged in. So what kind of wisdom or insight? Things like everything changes all of the time. That life itself is a process of constant change. There was one year here where um, we, uh, I have a friend who had, in fact, I think it's still true, she's never been to New England. And from my perspective, then, you know, I would say she's never seen like a real autumn. And this particular year, it happened to be an especially glorious, fantastic autumn where the, the leaves were so resplendent on the trees. They were just so gorgeous. And she called one day and she said, you know, I'm going to come for a visit in like 10 days or something like that. And I got so excited. And every day when I was uh, walking the loop, here after lunch, I would, I would be so filled with excitement, but also some other things that I would look at the leaves, those gorgeous leaves on the trees, and I would think, you better stay up there. <laughs> you know, like, she's never seen an autumn. What's it going to be like if she comes? And, you know, there's just like these little dry, shriveled leaves on the ground, you know, like, you better stay up there. And then the next day I'd walk and I'd look balefully at the leaves and I think <laughs> the same thing. And, and then one day she called and she said, you know, I can't come. I just can't make it. And my very first thought was, oh good, now I can let the leaves fall from the trees, you know? <laughs> but isn't it the case, you know, that seasons come and go. I was thinking this the other day, you know, I had to get a jacket. I came up, I flew in from Madison without a, a jacket and I thought, well, it's still summer, right? Like wrong, you know. <laughs> seasons change, things move, people change, situations change. We live in a world where that's actually the reality. And no matter what, that's going to be the reality. We also might have a certain degree of patience born from that. Sometimes I think that, well, maybe healing has its own rhythm. You know, that just as everything changes, everything moves, everything flows, we can't actually determine the rate of that change as much as we might like to. Joseph uh, Goldstein tells this story about being, I think he was about nine years old, when he grew his first and I believe his only garden. And he said that when the little 
green fluffy stuff would start coming up on top of the carrots. He'd get so excited and impatient that he'd pull them up <laughs> to help them grow faster. And I think maybe that's why it was his only garden. <laughs> you know, it's like he didn't have much of a, a crop. But, <laughs> you know, there needs to be a kind of letting go there, too, based on that wisdom, on that insight. And part of that wisdom or insight is understanding that it's not our universe to control. that as much as we would like to, we cannot determine just how things will go at what, in what time frame, with what twists and turns. It's just not in our hands. It's just not in the nature of things. I once went to, um, a Tibetan teacher of mine. And I was very distressed because of a friend who was in great emotional anguish and had been for a very long time. It seemed like it was never, ever going to change. And I was sort of complaining to this teacher because I felt very helpless to make, in terms of making a difference. Um, so I, I said something to this teacher like, I don't think it's fair. You know, why don't we get one person where we can just look at them and say, Poof, you're free. You're free of all your suffering. And he looked at me and kind of smiled. And uh, he said, well, that's why we call it samsara. Samsara is the Sanskrit word for this world of birth and death that's outside of our control. We don't get one person. Of course, even getting one person, there are all those other questions like, how do you choose your one? You know, and when do you do it? You don't want to do it too soon. You certainly don't want to do it too late, you know. <laughs> but we don't get one. It's just not how things are. And there, you know, that doesn't mean we need to have apathy um, or give in to feeling powerless, but Look at what happens when our own feeling of powerlessness rules the day. You know, the other person's suffering situation is hardly even relevant because we are so absorbed in feeling so bad that we can't make it all better. Whereas if we had an abiding wisdom that we're not in control of the unfolding of events, we would have a very different sense of spaciousness. And spaciousness is really um, another way of saying equanimity. It's like peace. It's not complacency. It's not giving up. It's not apathy. But it's like peace. So going back to that other model, we have the motivation for our action. We have the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the action. And then we have the third part, which is the immediate result, which is significant in two ways. One is uh, the immediacy question, and the other is the result, especially in terms of praise or blame. We could say success or failure in, those, in that light. 
you know, maybe we do something out of a beautiful motive. Like I decide to give somebody here that vase of flowers and I offer it to you in a, a really sensitive, skillful way, the best I can, but maybe, you know, during tea time, you illicitly used your cell phone to check your messages and you just found out you won like $10 million in the lottery. It's like you could not care less about this vase of flowers, you know, and you sort of nod distantly and walk away. So what does that mean about me? What does that mean about my generosity? What does that mean about my heart? What does that mean about my gift? Nothing. But what tends to be so ironic is that if our motivation is something we can actually transform and our skillfulness of action is something we can actually transform, which is the arena that we actually place our hearts upon to decide who we are, if we've done well, if we have integrity, whether we deserve to live, it's the arena that we can't do anything about, which is how someone reacts. Because life is just this web of conditions coming together. We're part of this huge fabric of connection, conditions unfolding. You can't really say to somebody, well, you know, something's going to happen at quarter after three. And I want you to come into the room. Please don't, don't check your cell phone messages. Don't check your email. Don't talk to anybody and don't think about anything. I want you to arrive as a completely blank slate. It's not going to happen. Every moment is like this confluence of conditions coming together and coming apart. So that's not to imply that we don't care. I mean, of course we care. We want to be thanked. We want to feel effective. We want to have appreciation. Of course we do. But the question becomes, how much do we care? You know, is this our road to that tremendous sorrow? Or can we have a different perspective? that's actually more realistic, it's more truthful, and therefore more powerful, which is that we're not in control of the unfolding of events. The way the Buddha put it, um, in a story I always like, uh, the way he said it was, there's always blame in this world. He said, if you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say, a lot, some people will blame you. And if you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. And the story is that um, this man came to the monastery one day to learn something of the Buddha's teaching. And the first person he came upon was this monk who had taken a temporary vow of silence. So when this man said to him, will you tell me something of what the Buddha teaches, he remained silent. And the man got really furious and he stomped away. So the same man came back a second day and came upon another disciple of the Buddha's who was said to be renowned not just for his great meditation attainment, but for 
his very vast and elaborate theoretical understanding of the teachings. So when he was asked, can you say something of what the Buddha teaches, he went into a very long, elaborate theoretical explanation, and the man got really furious and stomped away. So the same man came back a third day and came upon another disciple of the Buddha's, this monk named Ananda. He said Ananda knew what had happened on the first day and knew what had happened on the second day. So he was careful to say something, but not too much. And the man got really angry. And he said something like, how dare you treat such profound matters so sketchily, and he stomped away. So this group of people went off to see the Buddha, and they said, oh, Lord Buddha, this is what happened on the first day. This is what happened on the second day. This is what happened on the third day. What do you have to say? And the Buddha said, there's always blame in this world. If you say nothing, some people will blame you. If you say a lot, some people will blame you. If you say just a little bit, some people will blame you. There's always blame in this world. Our lives are just a cycle of praise and blame and praise and blame, often for the very same action, right? And, you know, it's not meant to imply that we don't care. I mean, of course we do. But is that going to actually define who we are and how well we've done? Because if it is, we're lost. Because we will constantly go up and down and up and down and up and down. I always think about those times that we receive praise and blame for the very same action. I find them quite interesting. You know, when my first um, book came out, which was Loving Kindness, it had taken me, uh, as some of you know, it had taken me quite a long time to write that book. And uh, if anyone ever sees, or maybe you have, an original version, like the hardcover version of it, which came out in 1995, and you look on the back, you can see that fact. You know, somebody who wrote a blurb said something like, um, we've waited a long time for this book. And another blurb said, in this long-awaited first book. And uh, someone else actually said um, something like, Sharon Salzberg has finally given us the <laughs> And I made the publisher take out the finally. I said, that's just too much. Uh, but it took me a long time to write the book. It really did. And uh, it was very important for me. And I was, it was amazing to me that I actually wrote the book and that it happened. And um, very soon after it came out, I was in California. And I had lunch with somebody. And she said to me, oh, Sharon, you know, uh, you wrote that book in such a way that it's just like being with you. It's just like sitting down and having a conversation with you. And I was so happy. I thought, wow, it took me all these years and I finally did it. And you couldn't say anything nicer, more gratifying to a writer. It was the most beautiful thing. And I was so jazzed by the comment that that night I was having dinner with a whole other group of people and I brought it up. And someone at the dinner table said, well, that's not true. <laughs> she said, I'm reading the book. It doesn't sound anything like you. It's nothing like being with you. And I thought, OK. You can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner. 
Or you could take a moment and just think, they're talking about the same book, <laughs> which I wrote from whatever was motivating me at the time with whatever level of skill I could bring forth at the time. And one person had one reaction, another person had another reaction. Believe me, I noticed the difference. <laughs> but do we really want to plunge into despair over something we could never control? You know, so that sense of having some peace within, born of wisdom, is really very important. And then another aspect of that is the immediacy of it. You know, we tend to have a very short-term perspective about our actions, about our giving, about our care. I so often come to the thought that really what we are doing is like planting seeds. And when we are lucky, then we get some kind of feedback. You know, maybe you give somebody a book and they do kind of nod distantly and walk away. And you think, well, that wasn't a big hit, you know, but maybe even years later they come back and say, you know, you gave me that book and didn't mean that much to me, but now, you know, my mother's very sick or I lost my job or um, even like there's this amazing opportunity that's opened up in front of me, but I feel really nervous about going for it. And I picked up the book and it was perfect. You know, so often we don't know. And many of you have heard me say that, you know, when we first moved into this place, um, within a month we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. The first, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> and I used to look at that and think, you know, what are they thinking? It's kind of like Joseph with his carrots, you know? <laughs> but the second quickly became my favorite and still my favorite, and that, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. <laughs> and I just love that so much. Because you love it too, I'm so happy. I loved it right away because um, it's still all these years later. Uh, you know, because there have been so many times in my life of meditation where I felt nothing was happening. It was just kind of dreary or useless or whatever, you know, and nothing was happening. Only for me to look back with the wisdom of hindsight and say, you know what, something was happening. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was putting the building blocks in place for this other thing. Or even that really hurt. That was so painful. But that opened me in a way that I could then deal with that in a different way. And so many times in a life of giving or caring or trying to make a difference in this world, feels like nothing is happening. And when we're lucky, we get some kind of feedback or information that, yes, I was planting a seed. It rippled out in some direction, in some way I could never have imagined. 
but without the seed, nothing happens. So we need a much bigger sense of time, really an immense sense of time, and to accept how much we don't know. We think that what is in front of us is the end of the story, and it's not the end of the story. It's just another phase. It's just another step as our actions ripple out. So all of this has to do with what in the Buddhist teaching is known as equanimity, which is a funny word. You know, it's not a word that you hear very often in casual conversation and could seem to mean indifference or not caring. And it doesn't mean that at all. I think of it really as that sense of spaciousness, of perspective. I think of equanimity as the articulation of wisdom. It's the way wisdom gives voice. So that with the wisdom of change, knowing that we're not in control, that life is a series of ups and downs, that it doesn't all happen on our timetable, we can bring that kind of, of peace to our actions so that we act to uh, clarify our motivation, to deepen our level of skill, and also to be able to let go in terms of praise and blame, in terms of the immediacy of the result. Not to have a kind of cocoon of delusion, you know, to cut off from caring, but because it's true. And it's the truth of that that can really allow us to sustain an effort so that we're not so hugely caught up in success and failure and praise and blame and has to happen tonight or it doesn't count. You know, it brings us to a whole other place. The Buddha said that life is actually, the fabric of life is actually made up of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. But that's just how things are. I was once um, hiking with some friends in California in the state park, and we decided we were going to hike in for three days, and then on the fourth day, turn around and come back out along the same trail. So this was the third day, so we were still hiking in, and it turned out to be a day of many, many hours, very steady, unrelenting downhill walking. And I was with a friend, and it was almost as though we were struck by the simultaneous realization at one point, and we just stopped in our tracks and turned to each other, and he said to me, in a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. <laughs> and Sure enough, he was right, because the next day when we turned around along the same path, it was many, many hours of very steady, unrelenting uphill walking. It's not to say that every level of the universe is dualistic, but on the level in which we know pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame, fame and disrepute, this is how we know it. And it's true for everybody. That's going to be the way things are. That actually our unfolding is not in flattening that out. 
<clears throat> but in having a completely different relationship to all of it, a relationship of wisdom, of balance, of awareness, of love, of compassion, no matter what might be coming our way. So that the question is not what's happening, but again, it's how are we with what's happening? And there we have infinite potential to bring a different force to bear. I have, um, some of you have heard me talk about this as well, I have a goddaughter uh, who's now 11. And when she was maybe four, she said to her mother, you know, Sharon's my godmother. And her mother said, well, you know, you have to ask. So they asked me and I said, oh yeah, you know, I'd be so honored, that would be so great. So through the years we, you know, developed a relationship or deepened a relationship. And then when she was about nine or so, she started sending me emails to her mom. You know, she would dictate the email to her mother. So this was the first email. I've been thinking about things and maybe you can help me out. Where did the universe come from? <laughs> Where did love come from? Where did space come from? Do love and space have anything to do with one another? Please tell me everything you know. <laughs> so I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I don't know about this. <laughs> But fortunately, there is a quotation from the Buddha in which he talks about love and space. So um, the quotation is something like this. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. So that if somebody were standing here in the middle of the room throwing paint around in the air, there's nowhere in this space that the paint is going to land. It's not going to discolor the space. It's not going to distort it. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. So I wrote that to her and I said, um, it's kind of like this, you know, you can have your mind be really, really, really big like the sky. And then different things happen, like maybe somebody at school says something that hurts your feelings or something really difficult happens for you. It's not that you don't feel it, but you've also got this real bigness of awareness like the sky. So, you know, these things are more like clouds moving through the sky. Or you can be like a sponge, you know, and if you're like a sponge, then it's like every mean thing somebody says is going to fill you. And all that difficult circumstance is going to fill you and you're going to end up like all oh, like kind of soggy, you know, like a sponge all filled with water, and, you know, and it's going to be really difficult. So then I didn't hear, I wrote all this to her, I didn't hear back from her. And then maybe like a month later, her mother told me that um, she, Willa, my goddaughter, got into a, an argument with her sister and Willa was going around the house muttering, I am like the sky. I am not a sponge. <laughs> I am like the sky. I am not a sponge. 
And since I've never had any children, I wasn't too sure about that, but her mother loved it. She said, wow, that's great. She's working it, you know? She's trying to make it real. So as true as it is for a nine-year-old, it's true for all of us. We can be like the sky or we can be like a sponge. And it's out of the greatest compassion for ourselves, you know? It's not out of trying to be a perfect person or anything punitive. It's out of the greatest kindness to ourselves that we try to remember those options. And we feel ourselves starting to soak it in. We see what we can let go of. Because in truth, we can't control all of those reactions, all of those changing circumstances. But we don't have to absorb them. Another way the Buddha talked about it was, um, to paraphrase it, something like, um, if you take a teaspoonful of salt and you put it in a glass full of water, because the glass is just a small, narrow vessel, the water is going to get very, very impacted by that salt. But if you take that same teaspoonful of salt or even a truckload full of salt and you put it in a pond full of fresh water, because of the immensity of that which is receiving it, it's not going to have such an impact. So the salt in this way is like the abrasiveness. It's so many of those things we can do nothing about. The things we cannot control, the changing circumstance, the bitterness that comes our way, the lack of being thanked, all of that. Sometimes we can change it, sometimes we can't. But when we can't, even when we can't, we can always affect the immensity of that which is receiving it. You know, can we really move toward much greater freedom out of this tremendous compassion for ourselves as well as for others? That's our path. That's our practice. My understanding of what compassion might mean um, has certainly changed over, over many years, and it changed in a, a very powerful way here um, in 1979 when the Dalai Lama came to visit. We were very young, and uh, sort of brazen, and heard that the Dalai Lama was coming to Amherst, which is just 45 minutes away. Um, so we wrote a letter to the private office and said, hey, we're a Buddhist center. You know, maybe he'd like to come here too. And to our amazement, one day we got a letter back saying, yeah, he'll come. <laughs> so then we had to get ready for the Dalai Lama. And, uh, even though it, security is nothing, was nothing then like it is now, still it was quite intense for us. You know, we had to blockade Pleasant Street and we had state troopers patrolling the roof with guns and, uh, you know, it was like very intense. And there was this whole big zooey scene uh, for his arrival. And, and just before he'd come, 
I was in a car accident and I had a broken bone in my foot and I was using crutches, which I was not very good with. So the day came that he was to arrive and I was standing outside in the back of a crowd of about 100 people waiting for his car to come and I was really having a bad time. I kept thinking, well, I'm here in the back, I'm stuck in the back, you know. I started the place, I should be in the front, you know. <laughs> but here I am, I'm way in the back, I should be in the front, but I'm such an incredible klutz. If I was in the front, I'd fall on my face on these crutches right in front of him, and you know, that would be terrible, so I better stay in the back, but then I'm in the back. And, you know, I was just kind of going on and on, and then his car pulled up, and um, he got out, and I, you know, I've seen him many times since do that, but it was the first time I've ever seen him, uh, I'd ever seen him do this particular thing, which was that he seems to have a kind of radar for who in a crowd is suffering the most, and he just goes there, and that was me. It's like in one fluid motion, he got out of the car, came up to me, took my hand, looked me in the eye, and said, what happened? And it was the moment. It redefined my whole sense of compassion because I realized in that moment he couldn't make the injury not have happened and he couldn't make me any more skillful in my use of the crutches, but that horrible feeling of being so left out, so unseen, so stuck in the back, it was gone. And so I've carried that image with me always since that time as a reminder of all those moments when we can't make the pain go away, but we can be there with someone fully, completely. Like, what happened? And so that I think of as the, um, it's like the perfect combination of caring, of compassion, and also of equanimity, of balance, of wisdom, which doesn't in any way weaken us, but actually gives us no matter what the circumstance, it gives us the strength to actually be present and to, to truly be engaged in a kind of generosity that is freely given. Okay, so let's sit together for a few moments.
thank you. We'll have half an hour for walking now and then come back for the last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.